sticks, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government hug the government love, the government hug the government love, the government Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. With me today is political and policy analyst Kristen Medini. Hey, Kristen. Hey, Mike. How are you? I'm, I'm doing okay today, actually. How about you? I'm okay. Lovely Saturday here. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah. you know, uh, before we get started with all the stuff we want to get to today, I want to first thank our newest monthly supporter on Patreon, and that is Brett. So thank you so much, Brett. We appreciate your uh, your help. Uh, also, I wanted to let everyone know that we've added some new benefits for our supporters at the fan, sustainer, and executive producer tiers on Patreon. Uh, in addition to the regular bonus show, which, of course, all supporters have access to, Everyone at the fan level will now have access to Politics Guys Quick Takes, which is a new feature that we're starting this week. Uh, what it is is essentially where we have a host who won't be on the show that week will give you their take on whatever they think mattered that week and why they think it mattered, that sort of thing. Um I've really been wanting to do this for a while now. Uh, there was a while back where I took a break for, I think it was three weeks, and it was nice to have the break, but I found myself thinking, gosh, I really wish I could comment on this, <laughs> at least, you know, briefly. And so, uh, you know, after I, I asked everyone else, and uh, everyone seemed to think that that was a pretty neat idea. And so it's a little extra thing that we're, we're offering to you, and so you can get kind of a more complete, I guess, politics guys take on uh, what's going on in the week. Um, also, at our uh, sustainer and executive producer tier, supporters are now getting invitations to our Politics Guys Slack group. And this is, I think, really kind of neat because you don't only get a chance to go behind the scenes as we figure out what our story lineup for the week is but you'll actually have the opportunity to offer your feedback. I think it was with Kristen, even this week when our first few folks were on, I think uh-huh. it was a uh, uh, Benji and Scott had some ideas for stories and, and we've, we've been able to kind of incorporate a few things in there. So it's really kind of a neat way to actually become even more a part of the, the show. And not only that, but we talk about kind of the larger direction of the show, things we want to maybe try out and so forth. And so if that sounds interesting to you, you can check it out again. That's at the, uh, that's at, the sustainer and executive producer tiers and all that stuff uh, you can check out at patreon.com slash politics guys. All right. With that out of the way, Kristen, I think we're ready to get going. Yeah. So the first story um, is really a terrible one. Uh, Last week in the nation got tragic news from El Paso, Texas and Dayton, Ohio. Two deadly mass shootings uh, took place. Um, A total of 31 were killed. Dozens more were wounded. Uh, President Trump visited both American cities later in the week, drawing praise from supporters and criticism from protesters. So this entire week, the nation has seen an even deeper divide uh, with elected officials, activists, pundits and celebrities on both sides of the political aisle throwing barbs to the other side. And what's transpired is a conversation about things like white nationalism, whether political parties are responsible for hate and tragedies like this one. But somewhere underneath these barbs were deeper policy issues that were really begging to be discussed and and things that, you know, we discuss from time to time when these things happen, but they don't seem to stick. Um, And those are conversations about things like gun control, mental health, the legal system, cultural issues and more. So it was a tough week, Mike. Yeah, absolutely. I, I I totally agree. And you know, it's it's almost a it's a deja vu kind of thing because I remember having mm-hmm. 
so many of these conversation conversations in past shows and and I, I think you know everyone everyone seems to think every time well this time maybe we'll be different and so forth and I, I wish I could believe that but but I just don't I, I think it seems to me I guess the one thing that's maybe a little bit different here is there seems to be a tiny bit of momentum for perhaps passage of not even passage of a red flag law mm -hmm. nationally but but to have the federal government or congress pass legislation that would provide some money or some incentives for states to pass their own red flag laws and i thought wow that's about the weakest possible response that i could <laughs> conceivably think of and even that i have my doubts about because even though the NRA has in the past said, well, we're, we're not exactly opposed to these, when those laws have actually been pushed at, at the state level in some states, they actually have opposed them. Basically, they want to make them as weak as possible. And so even, even in states that have these laws, and there are a bunch of them that have them, the effectiveness varies widely based on kind of that fine print sort of thing. And so I think I think the NRA maybe sees this as kind of a fig leaf sort of thing saying, well, we can say that we're doing something, but that that that's no that that's such a tiny step that it almost is it almost is meaningless. And it's it's you know, it's depressing and disappointing to me, but it seems to me that that this is essentially the price we pay. And I would almost have a little more respect for the NRA if they said, you know what, we have a lot more guns than any other developed country. We have a lot more gun deaths and we have a Second Amendment. And this is the price we pay for all of these freedoms is that we're going to have thousands more people die every year. And I don't know how you can look at the data and unless you're willfully blind and not say that we have a lot more gun deaths because we have a lot more guns. And if you're willing to make that trade off, OK, just have the have the stones to say well that's the trade-off we're willing to make and but don't try to tell me it's well mental health or violent video games or oh, walmart bans violent video game displays that's gonna help i mean so at least i'd like to see a little more honesty in this debate because it's pretty clear to me we're not going to actually make any progress at least not at the federal level yeah you know i um i went back because i remembered that there was a um an assault weapon ban um that 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 was actually what it was called and it was in i couldn't remember when it was i thought maybe it was under clinton um and it was mm -hmm. 94 and uh that of course expired after 10 years so this expired back in 2004 but this is you know this is an issue that it's funny because um you know we seem to talk about it every time one of these tragedies happens and then we it seems to die down a bit and then we talk about it again and it dies down a bit but this isn't anything new i mean this i remember yeah. i uh, i was in high school when the columbine shooting happened i was a high school student when that happened and i remember how that shook you know shook me and shook my friends um i uh i mean i'm sure you know listeners know this i live in south florida i actually live about 10 15 minutes from um parkland and i passed uh marjorie stone and doug on the day that um, that awful tragedy happened last year. Wow. Um, and I know I know three people who were affected by it, one who uh, had a daughter who was killed. Um, so, you know, I, I, I definitely I definitely understand that this is a conversation we need to have. But, you know, the problem with, for example, this assault weapons ban back in 94, and I think everybody agrees, mo most experts agree, I would say, um, is that it was very complex. There were lots of loopholes. And there was also, um, you know, 
there are illegal guns that need to be taken into consideration. You can obtain these guns illegally. But there were so many loopholes that, you know, they were they effective? Were they not effective? There's really no data to show one way or the other. And so it's been largely forgotten about. But, you know, you mentioned red flag laws. And I think I think there's a a good argument to go either way. They don't do enough. They go too far. Um, But I think that, you know, red flag laws are probably a good jumping off point for a discussion. And I know uh, majority leader Mitch McConnell has talked about the fact that they would be discussed. Um, President Trump has uh, talked about these red flag laws. I think um, I looked up because I wasn't sure how many states had actually enacted them. So it's 16 and then two are scheduled to start uh, red flag. I guess it will be enacted in 2020. And that's I think it was Hawaii and Nevada. And I know my state of Florida um, currently has red flag laws, although that's not what they're called on the books. So, you know, again, I think you're absolutely right when you say that this is about more than just violent video games. You know, we're, we're like you, you compared it to a fig leaf and and I think that's exactly what's happening. It's not about one reform or pointing the finger in one direction or or, or blaming, um, you know, one particular thing. This is something that's comprehensive. And this is something that's been going on for decades in this country. And it's, yeah. you know, it seems to be getting worse. And and it's and it's impossible to I, I feel it's impossible to point your finger and say this is the problem, because I think that's what we try to do as human beings. I think we look for a, a, a solution because it's easy for us. Um, sure. And I don't know that there is one solution for this or one cause. Well, I, I mean, I think that the, the solution is pretty clear is that, you know, we have over, I think, 300 million guns in this country. Well, well over that, actually. And and if we had a lot, a lot fewer guns, we'd have a lot, a lot fewer, a lot less gun violence. But that's not a viable solution. We're not going to even if we banned, even if we, we in, reinstituted a new assault weapons ban, it's not like the assault weapons that are out there or assault style weapons that are out there would be confiscated. Even if the government tried to do that, it just wouldn't be very effective. Not that I think it would even happen. So we have all of these guns out there. They're going to stay out there. We have all of these high capacity magazines, which to me, that's the bigger issue. I don't mm-hmm. really, it, to me, it doesn't seem to matter what, what a semi-automatic weapon looks like. Right. They all work the same way, whether it looks like an AK-47 or it looks like whatever, a squirt gun or something. I mean, you press the trigger once and a round goes down range. That's how a semi-automatic weapon works. And so I think a lot of people don't really get that. But again, the issue to me is it's just we're, we're stuck with this system. I think in a in a saner world, guns would be treated like cars. You'd have to pass a competency test, get a license, renew that license on a regular basis, and have liability insurance. And if you don't have proof of insurance, you can't buy a gun or a magazine or rounds or anything like that. But that's never going to happen. I, I think of all that, I think the solution that makes the most sense to me is that, that maybe could get the most purchase is the liability insurance thing. Because then... Mm-hmm. It takes the onus off of government and puts it on the private sector. So it's not the government telling you, you know, what you need to do with all these regulations. It's insurers saying, hey, you want a lower rate? Well, then you better have, you know, gun safety classes or things like that. That's a much more market-based solution that I think could get at least some 
conservatives on board. But even so, uh, I, I mean, I have no illusions about this. There's actually a uh, uh, there's actually legislation out there, uh, the Firearm Risk Protection Act of 2019, mm-hmm. uh, Representative Maloney from New York. But it's not going anywhere because nothing comprehensive is going anywhere because a lot of people own guns and they are very vehement and there's just not the political will to do anything that's going to matter. And also, when we talk about our gun problem, you know, these tragedies are awful, but our real gun problem is the is the suicide and the gun crime problem. Not so much the mass shooting problem, though that's that's horrific. It's what makes the news, but the the vast bulk, I think almost two thirds mm-hmm. of gun deaths are suicides. Mm-hmm. And so that's the real problem. And of course, you know, people people have mental health issues everywhere, but uniquely in the United States among almost all developed countries is they have access to a method of suicide that tends to be far more effective. And so if they happen to be momentarily depressed or in, you know, chemically induced state or something, well, there's no going back for that. So again, to me, it comes back to nothing's going to happen. Uh, I would be stunned if anything that mattered is going to happen. And, you know, Mitch McConnell was politically smart to say, hey, we're going to we'll look at this, but we're going to take some time because he understands the issue attention cycle. He knows that Mm -hmm. the public is going to move on from this. We moved on from from Las Vegas, 50 something. Yeah, we moved (laughs) on from kids being mowed down in schools. I mean, people are going to move down, move on from this, too. And he knows it. And that's going to be that's going to be the end of it. And it and it stinks as far as I'm concerned, but that's how it is. Yeah. And I, you know, I think that there are a lot of things that can't be addressed by um, by any sort of measure. Um, Things like stolen guns, uh, guns illegally smuggled. Um, For example, the um, there have been plenty of mass shootings where uh, the perpetrator built the gun or modified a gun. Um, You know, obviously, after Las Vegas, I remember that was my the the morning after the Las Vegas shooting. That was actually my first day at work in my old job. But in, in a newsroom. And I remember just being stunned by how quickly that, you know, we're all aware of it, but working in a newsroom, you see how quickly that news cycle travels. And it was yeah. people on, I mean, there were people on the right and people on the left who were, who were pointing to, to what happened and saying, we need to pay attention to this months after it happened. And we seem to have forgotten, you know, our collective consci- consciousness just sort of drifted to something else. It was me too, or it was, you know, something, the election, mm-hmm. the midterms, whatever. So, and I'm not saying these things aren't worthy. They're all worthy and they're all worth paying attention to. But, um, you know, I feel like every time something like this happens, we have a, an opportunity at, at best to open up sort of a national dialogue and we fail to do it. And, yep. um, you know, I, I think uh, I, you know, I have issues with with red flag legislation. I don't really see too many um, people coming forward with alternatives, um, things that sort of bridge the gap between mental health and gun ownership. Um, you know, people on both sides have talked about strengthening, uh, you know, restricting people who have had mental health issues. I know there are some possibly some constitutional issues with that. Libertarians aren't fond of that. Um, I actually know Democrats and Republicans who aren't fond of red flag laws for various reasons. But I'm just not sure that there's anything else worth talking about on the table. I'm not saying they should or shouldn't be enacted at, you know, on a on a broader scale. But I'm saying it's worth a conversation. And 
you know, I hope that that in some way this sticks because I think it's something that we do need to talk about and something we do need to address. I, but I do also think we need to address things like mental health. I think we need to address uh, the legal system and treatment of uh, individuals who have experienced mental health issues. Because the one thing that does keep popping up is that there were always warning signs, right? I mean, you know, I, this week we were... Uh, we were inundated with stories about the El Paso shooter and the Dayton shooter. Both of them had, you know, there were warning signs. Classmates had come forward, teachers. Um, I think a guidance counselor came forward, parents. I think um, in in the case of the El Paso shooter, uh, who was actually from the Dallas area, his mother had called just days before the shooting um, to tell the police that she was concerned he had ordered this AK-style rifle, and um, she was concerned that he wasn't mature enough or, or, you know, I guess mentally fit to have this rifle, and it was sort of brushed aside. Right. So I think there are so many different conversations uh, that we need to be having, including things like gun control, mental health, legal system. Um, we're just, we're not paying attention to enough, and we have enough to pay attention to, yes, but this is very important. Um, and I think, you know, those of us who are parents, you know, we obviously have some pretty strong concerns about it. Um, I think yeah. I, I, I can't say that a day goes by and I don't think about it. Um, sure. It's it's frightening. I, I just think in the end, you know, that the bottom line is the more freedom we give people to possess instruments of death, the more people are going to die. And, and that's the trade off. And anyone who doesn't admit that is being is being fundamentally dishonest. Mm hmm. Yeah, I, I would agree. Um, and of course, you know, just sort of talking about some of the things that, that have come up, um, you know, in in the past week after these shootings are um, some, of, some of the, you know, I guess, ideological issues, things like white supremacy. Um, you know, one of the things that particularly bothered me, I, I'm sure you felt the same way, Mike, is that there was this um, effort on both sides to point the finger in the other direction because you had uh, one shooter who maintained this sort of white supremacist uh, ideology. The shooter in El Paso um, was a pretty staunch Second Amendment advocate, and he had some white supremacist uh, leanings. And these, you know, these were things that he, I think he was 21 years old. They dated back to high school, uh, which it should have been an alarm bell, you know. But um, you know, we we talked a lot about that this week, and of course in Dayton. Um, there were allegations that the shooter had some Antifa leanings. Um, either way, violent, very violent rhetoric. And of course, I think there were a lot of barbs thrown either way. It, it That disturbed me because I think it just deepened the divide. Yeah, all I think, I mean, in the Dayton thing seems to be a lot sketchier, but it seems right. entirely clear that on the El Paso side, I mean, there was there was a, a manifesto of sorts and so forth. So that that yes. seemed to me to be absolutely clear. And then that gets, like you said, in that whole thing of of, of uh, white supremacy, white nationalism. And of course, a number of Democratic presidential candidates came out and said flat out that they think Donald Trump is a white supremacist. Uh, I know Elizabeth Warren and, and Beto O'Rourke said that. I, I think that's taking it a bit too far. I mean, or at least I guess I'll say I think there's insufficient evidence to conclude that Donald Trump is a white supremacist, at least as I understand the terms. To me, uh, white supremacist is someone who believes that the, the white race, so to speak, is, well, you know, superior to all the other races and therefore mm -hmm. should rule over them. A white nationalist, on the other hand, is somebody who wants to sort of maintain a white national identity in the United States. And there, I think you could make a much better case for Donald Trump falling into that camp than the white supremacist camp. But, but honestly, I think that's a tough 
it's it's tough to determine that either way. But what it isn't tough is that when you have a manifesto that mentions the invasion of the Mexicans and you have a president who repeatedly talks about the invasion, a guy who says, I'll do whatever is necessary to stop the invasion of our country. It's like a war, like there's a foreign invasion. When there's a rally in Florida where somebody says, shoot them, and the, and the president just smiles and says, only in the panhandle can you get away with that statement. I mean, are you kidding? And people argue that he's not normalizing this sort of thing. That's I, I mean, I, I get it. He's at these rallies and he's he's basking in the adulation of all of these fans. And so they say stuff and it gets them worked up. And he just feels the he feels the God love seems like the wrong word, but he feels the emotion and the passion and he goes with it. And I don't think I don't think he cares that he's stoking it because he just loves the feeling of all those people directing their adulation. And that's the only thing that matters to Donald Trump, as far as I can tell. I. You know, this this has been a a tough week for everybody. But, um, you know, in these moments where we're all feeling very low and we're looking to these these places and these communities that have just been ravaged, um, I wish that and I know that that I won't get anywhere with this wish, but I wish that that we would all come together and that we would all tone down violent rhetoric. Um, And that includes people on my own side, um, on the right side, on the left side. and I, and that's just not what I'm seeing. There are a lot of things and and statements that that President Trump makes um, that I think he could rephrase or I think he could reword or rethink. Um, and I think you gave a really good example of that. Um, and I do think that um, all sort of violent rhetoric um, and this pointed hatred towards the other, the other, so to speak, and the other side um, stoke these flames. And of course, you know, we'll get into um, the the whole uh, Castro doxing on Twitter thing. I think that didn't help matters. But I see this coming from both sides. Um, I see a lot of violent rhetoric coming from both sides. Um, This idea that um, Democrats are going to take the White House in 2020 and they're going to get payback, you know, for 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 this win in 2016 and everything that's transpired. I don't see this as a Donald Trump problem as much as I see this as an everybody problem. Um, although I do think Donald Trump needs to tone down his rhetoric from time to time. I also think people, other people on the right and on the left need to tone down their rhetoric because I don't think that any of this is helping. I don't think Donald Trump, um, you know, making some of the, you know, sort of goading this on at his rallies is helping. Um, I don't think that Elizabeth Warren and uh, Beto O'Rourke, you know, pointing fingers and calling, you know, people white supremacists and uh, making these allegations that, you know, donors in, in, in districts and tech Texas are white supremacist supporters. I don't think that's helping. So again, you know, I think this needs to be part of a, a bigger conversation that we're having about the divide uh, that we're dealing with. Um, I don't think anything's going to happen with that. I wish it would. Well, I, I certainly don't disagree, but I think there's a bit of a false equivalency here. I mean, especially given the fact that the president of the United States is the person who is the, you know, supposed to be the kind of our exemplar of moral rectitude and uh, and the symbol of our country and so forth. So the president, I don't think it's at all unreasonable to hold the president of the United States to the highest standard, higher than certainly uh, random presidential candidates or senators or representatives or or whoever happens to be the pundit of the week. And yet 
the president of the United States, the current occupant of the White House, has been a dismal failure in being an ethical or moral exemplar for anything. And so I, I think it's while you're you're certainly not incorrect in saying that, hey, everyone could do a little bit better, we should be able to we should we should demand far, far more of our president than any other political leader. And in this, he's been a disgrace. Um, you know, I, I would I would agree with you to to a certain extent, um, but I, I still I'm going to stick with my original comment, which is that the divisiveness that's going on is the responsibility of both parties. And I do think it's up to party leadership. Now, I have to give credit to Nancy Pelosi in a lot of ways. She's done a pretty good job sometimes of trying to sort of quell the tempers on her side. Again, you know, we've talked about uh, before on this show when you and I have co-hosted that um, she is a a savvy politician um, and she understands rhetoric um, better than a lot of people uh, who are in Congress. And I think she understands that there's a lot of harm in this rhetoric. Now, This is not to say because I know people will say, but wait a minute, you're not bringing up Donald Trump. I am bringing up Donald Trump. I think that Donald Trump should be held accountable for the things he says and for, uh, you know, the flames he stokes. Obviously, you have, you know, somebody in El Paso who was inspired by some of the things he said and some of the language and rhetoric going on. And I think that's wrong. And I think there needs to be accountability there. But I think that but, you know, I think. I don't think it's necessarily one side that's that's culpable. I think it's both sides. And I think I get frustrated when people sort of point fingers either way, not, you know, not at me necessarily, but in either direction. It's it's your fault. It's your fault. I just feel like it gets us nowhere. And I think, um, you know, as a Republican, I think it's it's important for us to stand up and say we have to take responsibility for this. We have to tone down our rhetoric. And, you know, the the president is a Republican and we need to take ownership and responsibility for that. Um, and so everybody on our side needs to tone down the rhetoric. And I think people on the left need to do the same. But unfortunately, I don't see that happening. I don't see this, you know, this sort of dissipating anytime soon. And, you know, it, it, it takes something like a national tragedy like this to make us realize just how deep this divide is. It should be doing the opposite. It should be uniting us and bringing us together. Um, you know, I think that that, you know, the intention, I think there are good intentions out there, but I think they're just quashed by uh, people who are flaming, who are inflaming these tempers. Sure. I, absolutely. And I would say those those people are led by by the president, who I, I would argue is the most polarizing president I, I've seen in my lifetime and in 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 a long, long time, maybe even before that. So uh, but, you know, on in terms of substantively what's happening, it seems to me to be pretty clear that far right domestic terrorism is on the rise, though. Maybe not quite as much as the, some statistics might suggest because of better reporting in recent years, but even so, seems to be pretty clearly on the rise. And so now I think we should at least expect that Congress and the administration focus more resources on, you know, on, on combating this. Uh, I mean, if you take a look at President Obama's last year in office, uh, they DHS funded anti-extremist groups to the tune of around $21 million. Last year, I believe in 2017, uh, Donald Trump's DHS, $3 million. Now, that might in part be because some of these anti-extremist groups are seen as pro-liberal, but I think the general, the larger point is that we need to find a way to really start working on this problem and directing a lot more federal law enforcement resources to this. And it's a 
it's a tough problem because it's not like back in the in the 50s and 60s when, you know, the FBI kind of cut the legs out from under the Klan by mm-hmm. essentially the old the, the old joke was you went to a Klan meeting and there were more FBI agents than there were Klan members. Right. But now it's like these little cesspools of hate, like the A-Chan and the other groups like yeah. that. So it's not like there's organized meetings and these are lone wolf type of things and so forth. So it's it's a lot harder thing to figure out and to deal with. And, you know, we'll really know how much the administration cares about this as a problem and sees it as a problem when we see what sort of resources they're directing toward it. I mean, or if they're going to take the Tucker Carlson line, like, well, white nationalism is just a hoax, like the Russia thing, you know, oh, I yeah. mean, that, that to me is, is ridiculous and irresponsible. And uh, we'll see, we'll see when the money if the money goes to it, that, you know, whether or not the administration seems to agree with that position. Yeah. Um, I think that, you know, there are rather than attack sides, because I, you know, I don't think that any uh, logical Republican or logical Democrat out there would want to claim a group like Antifa or would want to claim white supremacists. Um, but the truth is that these these groups exist and they commit these horrendous acts and they inspire people to commit these horrendous, these lone wolf types, you know, and, you know, mental stability conversation you know, aside, this is something that we need to address if they're spreading these yeah. ideologies of hate. Um, you know, it's it's just like you said, it's become too easy with the Internet and with social media. And again, I don't think, you know, recently we had a law to limit social media and to put, you know, restrictions in place on social media. I think that was Holly out of Missouri, I believe. But, um, you know, I don't think that that's the answer either. Um, but again, I think this needs to be a national conversation. How do we address this without pointing fingers at the other side? Because no, nobody want, seems to want to take ownership for what's on quote-unquote their side and it's, and it's not politically advantageous to do so but nobody wants to claim these groups so let's you know let's have a conversation about these groups and let's decide what we're going to do with them yeah i mean absolutely absolutely yeah so um should we move on to the next topic sure Okay, um, so the next topic that uh, that we wanted to talk about is uh, something a little more policy focused, uh, and of course, you know, with all the news of the shootings, uh, this was sort of a, a close number two in the news. Um, but it's something that didn't get a lot of attention until later in the week, and that's um, this past Monday, the U.S. did something that it hasn't done in a while. Uh, the Treasury Department declared China a currency manipulator, and this is interesting because this hasn't happened since the 1990s. Um, And back in the 1990s, it was actually China that had earned the title. Um, So to sort of set the scene for all this, it went down in the midst of deteriorating uh, trade relations and President Trump's decision to impose additional tariffs on Chinese goods. And this has also been something that's sort of been circling the drain for a while. Um, Then candidate president, uh, I guess he wasn't president yet, then candidate Trump often spoke of China as a possible currency manipulator. This was back in 2016. And the Treasury Department has said that the nation that they had kept the nation on a currency watch list for the past few years. And of course, there are um, plenty of points and counterpoints. Um, Critics are arguing that the decision could escalate things, uh, lead to a U.S.-China trade war. And others argue that this could, um, on the flip side, uh, level the, the trade playing field and repercussions would be felt in China and not in the U.S. So I'm seeing a lot of back and forth, um, but I know this is something that you really wanted to talk about, Mike. So I want to make sure to give you the mic. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Because I think there's a lot of misunderstanding uh, around this whole idea of currency manipulation. I think a lot of people don't quite 
understand what it is or, or why it matters. And first off, you'd say there's no question that China had been a currency manipulator, but actually they more or less stopped doing that around 2013. So, you know, back then we could have legitimately labeled them a currency manipulator, but we didn't. And now when China has actually done been doing more to prop up its currency, we're now saying that they're trying to devalue when really this current devaluation, almost all almost all uh, economists would tell you is has been driven much more by markets than by the Chinese government. So for one thing, the designation is just flat out, flat out wrong. It doesn't really mean a whole lot in theory. It doesn't lead to anything except uh, there need to be some, I guess, talks after that after that uh, designation is made. But it's it, it doesn't do a whole lot. And I think what what. Maybe the, the basic of this essentially is if you have a weak currency, and this is the argument is that China is trying to weaken its currency. And the advantage of having a weaker currency is that it helps your exports. It makes your exports uh, more uh, affordable to other countries. And so a lot of people, well, China, they're an export-driven economy, so therefore they're going to make their currency weak, and that will help them out. But of course, there's no such thing as a free lunch. That hurts your imports, and it also means you get less outside investment. And so conversely, if you have a strong currency, more outside investment, it hurts your exports and helps your imports. So a lot of this, I think, is based on this idea that China is almost entirely export driven. A lot of people think that. Well, Mm -hmm. that used to be true. I I dug into the this week, I dug into the World Bank stats, which keeps uh, uh, all kinds of stats, economic stats on, you know, all the countries in the world, all 195 of them, I think it is. And, you know, it's as recently as around a decade ago, China's exports accounted for somewhere around over a third of its entire GDP, which is a lot. But actually, in the most recent year we have data for, which I believe is 2017, China's exports were only 19.5% of their GDP. That's, that's lower than all but 33 of the 195 countries in the world. In other words, almost every country in the world has more of their economy based on exports than China's. I, I, I was stunned by that. I double checked just to make sure that was right. <laughs> um, but so China is predominantly not export driven, despite what people might think. And I think it makes sense to understand why that would happen, because China has an enormous domestic economy. Right. And they have mm-hmm. a lot I mean, if, like almost four times as many people as the United States. So. In that case, because they're not so export driven as they used to be, they, they're not going to be as interested in keeping their currency weak. And so I think a lot of times when people think about China, they're thinking about China under an old paradigm. But China has been changing really rapidly over the last well, really since around 2000 when they when they became part of the WTO and basically the world kind of economic system. Mm-hmm. And so. That to me is a big part. And of course, the U.S. is even less export driven than China. The U.S. actually is lower than all but eight countries in the world in the percentage of its GDP that's export driven. So that's one of the big things I wanted to get across is that the the world that you think you might have known in terms of what, you know, what China is like, that world is changed an awful lot in a very short amount of time. So uh, that that's the main point I wanted to make here. And of course, I think another important point is that, you know, Donald Trump has been pushing an awful lot for the Fed to lower interest rates. And really, that's kind of an indirect form of currency manipulation, because 
the higher your interest rates, the more people want your currency, which makes your currency stronger. That pulls in investments, but it hurts your exports. And so it's just the opposite when you lower your interest rates. So Donald Trump wants to do some currency manipulation, too, but uh, he just doesn't want to, you know, <laughs> he doesn't want to maybe call it as, as such. So, uh, so yeah. That, and so the general point, I think, is that we it sounds like, well, currency manipulation, bad, but I think there's just a lot of misunderstanding around the entire topic. And 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 granted, international trade and finance is hugely complicated. I know whenever I talk about it to students, I see the eyes <laughs> glaze over and so forth. Yeah. And so I just wanted to kind of get this information out there so people might have a better context for understanding some of this stuff. Well, you know, one of the the easiest ways that I've ever heard it described before, and I think it makes a lot of sense um, to people who aren't economists. I'm not an economist. I mean, most, you know, people, even, you know, political types aren't economists, um, is the idea that every country, um, to some extent, engages in currency manipulation. Um, Everything is an act of currency manipulation. And therefore, because everything is, nothing is sort of a thing. And and I think that's a that in a way, I mean, it's a little bit twilight zoney, I guess you could say. But, um, you know, I think it's the best way to to frame this argument. Um, I do think it's important that uh, we bring some of these issues, foreign exchange rates, uh, balances of trade to focus. I think they're legitimate government concerns for the U.S. and for other nations as well. Um, But like you said, this this issue is so complex. I mean, you've got people in the Trump administration saying that um, this, you know, the the currency devalued overnight. It was very, very quick. I think it raised a lot of alarms for a lot of people. Um, And uh, a lot of people um, involved in the Treasury Department said that it violated China's G20 commitment to refrain from competitive devaluation. But again, if you look at it in a a bigger frame, you you think to yourself, what is this going to do? What is tacking on extra tariffs going to do? And, um, you know, I I think it remains to be seen, but I think you make some really good points. And and I also think it's something that people need to keep an eye on. Um, You know, we have, I think people tend to kind of tune out things like currency manipulation, these big financial issues. Um, you know, again, we're not economists, but I think yeah. it's definitely worth paying attention to. Well, and you know, and you mentioned tariffs. And of course, uh, another mm-hmm. point I want to make about that is tariffs are not just a tax. They're they're a regressive tax. You know, if, if uh, uh, you know, the, the iPhone, say, that you wanted to buy before the tariffs was 800 bucks and it ends up being 880 bucks, that, that means a lot more to someone who's making, say, 50 grand a year than it does to someone making $500,000 a year. Mm-hmm. And so there's there's no question that these tariffs are going to be felt by American consumers, and they're going to be felt the most by the consumers that are at the lower end of the economic spectrum. And, that, and you know, I've said this a number of times, you know, there, you can even make a principled case for doing this. You know, it's, it's pretty clear that the Trump administration's position of public position of trade wars are good and easy to win is just ridiculous. But that's not to say that trade wars might not occasionally be worthwhile. I'm not entirely convinced, but you could say, well, hey, if we could be willing to suck it up and take a little bit pain, pain that's maybe felt more by some people than others, certainly. But if the if the final result is sort of a reset playing field that's fairer to the United States, maybe long term, that's worth the sacrifice. But that's not the argument that any anyone's making in public. But I think that's the reality of it. And and I wish that the administration just had the guts to make the honest argument for it. 
you know, I, I think tariffs um, have worked from from time to time. Um, you know, the Trump administration has certainly uh, engaged in in, you know, tariffs, um, trying to keep companies from going overseas, for example, trying to keep companies staying here on U.S. soil. Um, I think to some extent it's it's worked. But like you said, um, the you know, the long term idea behind tariffs is that you're going to sort of level the playing field and make things easier for Americans in the long run. But we are short-sighted and tariffs don't always work. And so I think this is a big risk on the part of the Trump administration. Yeah. Just like I thought that, um, you know, t- sort of forcing uh, companies' hands like Ford uh, moving to Mexico versus staying in the United States, I thought that was risky. Sometimes it's paid off and sometimes it hasn't. Um, and in the Trump administration, you just never know. This is a guy who likes to take risks um, and he's surrounded himself by people who like to take risks. So, um, you know, I, I think it'll remain remain uh, yeah. a, a question mark until we see the ultimate outcome. And it may take a long time, um, but I think it's worth putting a pin in and talking about. Yeah. And of course, it's pretty clear that President Trump is certainly uh, he's not a conservative. He's certainly not a libertarian either, because no. the libertarian you know, position would be, hey, if they want to move to Mexico, that that's great. We should yeah. we should let them because yeah. that way we won't propping up our businesses that can't be competitive. And the, through the process of creative destruction and whatnot, we can create even bigger and better businesses and so forth. But that's not an argument that's going to play too well, certainly not in the uh, industrial manufacturing states. No, no. And as somebody who sort of strides the line with libertarianism from time to time, I've definitely had some of those questions in my head, um, especially, you know, when that was happening closer to the beginning of his term. So uh, anyway, uh, should we move on? Because we have a couple more topics to talk about. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) Okay. So the next topic uh, that we're going to talk about is uh, our I should say, are the ICE raids. Um, This past Wednesday, hundreds of immigration officials raided seven plants uh, across the state of Mississippi. And these seven plants were operated by four companies. Um, The search warrant stated that there was suspicion that these companies willfully and unlawfully employed undocumented workers. Uh, This was one of the largest stings in more than a decade. 680 people in total were arrested. And shortly after that, more than half remained in ICE custody, while about 300 were released. And once the dust cleared, immigration officials said that these workers, uh, most were formerly residing in other states, had obtained empl- uh, employment cards in these plants. In some cases, uh, stolen identities were used, which is um, pretty common. The companies could face serious legal consequences for these hires, and that includes jail time or more likely very stiff fines. Uh, law enforcement and some state officials have stated that uh, they were merely investigating the companies over the course of years and enforcing immigration law. And then, of course, on the flip side, local church leaders, activists and local elected officials in some cases have gathered support, uh, gathered to support families of the detained workers, particularly children and spouses. And many have called the raids dehumanizing and inhumane. So, um, you know, there was quite a bit of uh, back and forth about this about midweek. Um, and yep. and of course, this was uh, the largest raid in over a decade. I think um, there was one. There were there have been raids that were larger on single companies, um, but it's it's been well over ten years. Yeah, what what a what a completely backwards approach to this whole problem. I think it shines a light on the real problem, and, and the real problem to me is that we have a lot of jobs that you just cannot find anyone but undocumented workers to do. And so they're doing them. They're being hired to do these jobs. I mean, we have incredibly low 
unemployment. Basically, if, if you want a job, almost you can, you can find it. So employers are having more trouble in many cases hiring people for low skill than for high skill jobs. And, and so where are these people coming from? Well, they're, they're undocumented workers. And, and the, the thing about this is Mississippi has one of the stronger E-Verify systems in the country, which points out how many holes there are in this. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, it's easy to submit fake documentation. Um, Social Security Administration uh, has estimated that uh, close to 2 million immigrants are working with fake or stolen Social Security cards, and that number is just rising. We don't have any kind of a decent visa program for low-skilled workers. We, we need these people to help our economy. These people are vital for our economy, and yet they're only the, e, the EB3 visa program, which is essentially mm -hmm. for low-skill workers, limited to, I believe, 5,000 people. I mean, that's just that's just insane. We need so many people to do these jobs that they're actually, and this idea that they're jobs that Americans would, would be getting is just has been debunked time and time again. Mm -hmm. So I think, number one, we need to figure out a way to have like a, a guest worker program for these low skilled jobs. There are programs like that for seasonal work, agricultural and other things, but they're not nearly big enough, I would argue. Not only that, but when we, we need we need to make E-Verify much stronger, we need to make it we need to make it dead simple for employers, old employers. I mean, like an app on your phone, simple and mm -hmm. much more foolproof. And that's going to require a lot of money. But I think it's it's just critically important for for our economy. And not only not only that, but when companies hire these folks illegally, there should be real fines. The fines on the companies are laughable. It certainly mm -hmm. destroys the families, you know, as yeah. we've seen. But the companies, these are in many cases billion dollar companies and the yeah. fines. The fines can be like a couple hundred dollars to a few thousand dollars. It, companies laugh this stuff off. So if we were really serious about this, we would we would attack it from that angle. But, you know, there are a lot of advantages for big businesses to hire undocumented workers, because if you if you look at the kind of conditions these folks are forced to work under, they have no recourse because they're told, hey, you complain. You're going to be booted out of the country. They oftentimes don't speak the language, don't have anyone they can go to. That's a it's a great advantage for unscrupulous employers. And there are plenty of them, uh, mm -hmm. especially in the agricultural sector, where it's just sickening how people are treated. But this is the kind of, I would think, common sense reform that's not going to happen because there are too many business interests that say, you know what? Hey, we could talk a good game, but we like having workers who don't have any power over us where we can essentially do what we want with them. And and I think that's where we need to focus. Right. You know, I I, um, I was actually going to make your point that um, these companies you're working with, multi-million, billion dollar companies, um, you know, Coke Foods, Pearl River Foods. I mean, these are in a lot of places, household yep. names. These are huge companies that have thousands, if, if not tens of thousands of, of, of workers. And a lot of them are undocumented. And um, I was reading about this because I wanted to know how much these like supposedly stiff fines were going to be. It's $3,000 a worker. So if, for example, um, you know, one of these big companies has 200 workers or 300 workers that are detained, that's $3,000 per worker. I mean, in the, in the end, that's not going to affect their bottom line very much. They're going to pay. And this is what happens. I mean, I know 
I know that this happens. This has been happening for decades, and I don't think anybody wants to talk about it. It's a bit of a dirty secret, but these companies will pay the fines. They don't see jail time. I mean, that's, you know, you're not going to, you know, put these you know, business people in in these overcrowded, we've got a problem there, you know, these overcrowded jails is very expensive. And so, you know, you, you, you give them the, you levy these fines, they pay them, and then they go about their business and they hire more undocumented workers. And those undocumented workers are subjected to these, you know, terrible conditions and they're crossing state lines. And I think, you know, when we've talked about this, I think that this is one of these areas that where bipartisanship can work, because I think yeah. that there are sane, rational, logical people on both sides who see that this is a real problem. Um, and, you know, the the thing that that always gets me are these stories. And I know that they're designed to pull at the heartstrings, but it, it their truth are of these yeah. families, these children who are separated from their parents. I know, um, you know, as 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 somebody who is a, uh, you know, a, a Christian and somebody who has, you know, a heart and a family, um, I donated to two churches this week who were doing outreach with the children of some of the people who were detained um, and some of the families. And, and I think it's important that we step up and we say that this is a system that doesn't work. And again, you know, I don't want to say I'm hopeless about it. Um, you know, I don't like being negative, but to some extent, I think I am because I know the truth of it is that these big companies are going to just keep paying these fines yeah. and we're just going to keep hiring these undocumented workers. It's a tough situation, um, but, you know, creating a, a better pathway for these workers, particularly in agricultural fields, particularly in, in yeah, I know California is, is fraught with problems, but Texas also has a lot of problems, sure. even you know, uh, across the Midwest, I know the the largest single raid on a company took place in Iowa. Um, you know, this this isn't something that's relegated to border states. This is something everybody's dealing with. And yeah. I think we need to open up that line of communication and come to some sort of a bipartisan conclusion about what we're going to do to make it easier for these people, because then that would give them um, an opportunity to have some recourse if, you know, if they don't get paid or yeah. if their you know conditions are unsanitary or unsafe or something like that. I mean, we have to to be able to give them that much. Yeah, yeah, I, I totally agree. And, you know, I think that certainly the way to move forward is, is almost is not going to be focusing on evil businesses, framing it that way. And so right. the way I would frame it is to say our current system has put businesses in an impossible situation. Absolutely. They need workers to do these things. They cannot find enough legal workers with correct paperwork to do them. So so what do you expect them to do to just say, well, okay, I guess we're not gonna we're not gonna process any more food or we're not gonna pick any more whatever. I mean, that's that's totally unreasonable. And so we need we need a visa system that meets the need of our businesses in this country. And we're we're failing our businesses in a dramatic fashion by not providing that system. And that means unlike the president's call for reforms, which focus on high-skilled workers, we need a lot more low-skilled workers to be able to come legally to this country and do the work that they're already doing, but now under the table, not part of the system, and so where they can be mistreated. And 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 I would think that in a slightly, even a slightly better world, people could get behind this, both Republicans and Democrats. Yeah, I, I'd have to agree on that, definitely. Um, but yeah, I mean, this is one of those things, again, we'll just, we'll keep watching to see what comes of this. I don't have a lot of hope, but maybe there's a glimmer there. Um, you know, there have been some, some, uh, representatives and senators who have stepped forward and said, this is something we need to work on now, you know, if anything happens. 
happens. I guess we'll we'll be talking about it again on an upcoming yeah. show. But uh, yeah, you know, I, I'm not hopeful either for the reason yeah. that I think the only way to make this work would be to say we're gonna we're going to massively increase the number of low skilled, low educated, uh, uh, you know, Central and South Central American workers that we're going to allow into this country. C- can you see that? No. getting anywhere. Yeah, no. exactly. No, exactly. I, no, because I, I think we have people on on two extremes who don't see the benefit of how ha- I mean, yes, these people need to be legal and it's as much for for them as it is for, you know, the yeah. United States government. We have to be able to to vet these people yes. to some extent and we have to be able to account for them. But at the same time, and I, and I think that's something that that a lot of logical Republicans will say, it's certainly something that I say. But on the other hand, we have to be able to give them recourse if something yep. happens, if something goes wrong, um, you know, and we have to, you know, give them the opportunity to be able to speak on their own behalf and to be with their families and not live in fear of of suddenly going through deportation and being separated from their family so you know i think i think you can that it's i think something like that if we were to really be honest about it and put politics aside i chuckle when i say that (laughs) internally but if we were able to do that we could see that this would not only benefit us but it would benefit these workers and their families and it would be a win-win-win you know, yes, but exactly. But we're not we're not there. <laughs> no, not even close. Yeah. So uh, I guess uh, should we move on to the last? Yeah, topic? There, I know that one more story that we, we wanted got, to cover. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah, we got one more story. Um, and, and again, this was something that was a, a real hot topic all week, kind of off and on. Um, on Tuesday, Representative Joaquin Castro of San Antonio, Texas, he's the brother of Democratic presidential candidate um, Julian Castro, tweeted a list of names and businesses. Um, or employers of 44 people in San Antonio. So this includes uh, people who would presumably be his constituents who donated the maximum amount allowable under federal law, which is uh, $2,800 to the Trump campaign. These people included prominent local business owners, as well as retired people and some others. Democrats, including Representative Rashida Tlaib and Castro's brother Julian, uh, voiced support. And this immediately caught the attention, of course, of those on the right who immediately uh, called it doxing, dog whistling, and in some cases, unethical. Several Republican lawmakers are calling on ethics investigations over this retweeted list, uh, (laughs) while Castro and supporters argue that the information was public record anyway. So this is something that was uh, popping up. And it was funny because I saw it circulating on sort of right wing news sources. It's sad I even have to qualify and say left wing, right wing. But this is, you know, it was making more more headway and getting more traction. And by midweek, I was seeing it on some on, on just about every mainstream outlet, uh, which I thought was interesting. But um, I don't know. What's your take on it, Mike? Oh, those sensitive snowflakes on the right who can't <laughs> handle being uh, being outed by uh, by somebody actually going to the publicly available FEC website, typing in a zip code and getting a list of donors, which I just did uh, just yesterday. So I found out who the max donors in my zip code were. It's a pretty poor zip code, so there aren't too many of them. But I mean, to me, this is just so ridiculous how retransmitting publicly available data and not just buried in some archive, but stuff that you can literally get in 20 seconds by going to fec.gov and then typing in a zip code or a name or an industry that, you know, to me, this points out that people who say 
Therefore, transparency in, in, in campaign finance, in a lot of cases, are only for it in theory. Sure, transparent, so long as no one actually bothers to look up the information or it's not publicized. So I know that you could technically say, find out who I gave money to, but no one's going to do that. So it doesn't matter. But if you did it, oh, my gosh, you're calling me out. That, that's, that's to me, it's just ridiculous. So here's here's the issue that I have with it, um, you know, and I, and I do think that there are a lot of people on the right who are being a bit, shall we say, snowflakey about, uh, <laughs> you know, this this whole issue. And, and I think snowflakes exist, you know, on the right as much sure. as on the left. But I think that, um, you know, some of the issues that that I took with this were my, my very first question when I first saw this and it um, I actually saw it on my Twitter feed. So I, I feel like I got this. I, I like making up my own mind. And, and I saw this um, because I, f- I follow Joaquin Castro on Twitter. And the, f- the first thing I thought was, what is his goal here? What's his purpose um, of, of doing this? I'm not saying there's there's anything wrong with it, right with it. I'm just wondering what his purpose is. And I did think about doxing, dog whistling. Is is that what's going on here? And I said, you know what, I'm, I'm going to see what he says about it because he really didn't say much. Um, accompanying the tweet, he he had some uh, some comments about these people supporting ideologies that call Hispanic immigrants invaders. Then I took a, another step back and I said, you know, that language is reminding me of something. So the the word invaders was actually used in the El Paso Shooters Manifesto. Mm-hmm. So then I thought to myself, is this is Joaquin Castro trying to draw a link between these people who donated to the Trump campaign and the shooter? And I, I'm not. Yeah. I don't. I think he I, was. I, I, think, I think he, he was. was too. Right. Yeah. I mean, and, I, I agree with you. Entirely. I mean, I think he's what he's doing it because when I the first thing I did, the same thing to you did. I don't follow him on Twitter, but I read right. the tweet. And for people who haven't, the, the tweet, the original tweet said, sad to see so many San Antonians as 2019 maximum donors to Donald Trump, the owner of Bill Miller Barbecue, owner of Historic Pearl, realtor Phyllis Browning, etc. Their contributions are fueling a campaign of hate that labels Hispanic immigrants as invaders. And right. so. I don't see how you cannot say, well, it, it seems to me the only logical conclusion is that he wants people to see all those names. And there was a, that attached you know, graphic with the with the complete list. Right. But basically saying, well, OK, that these people are supporting the sort of hate that leads to these shootings. So therefore, maybe we should think twice about going to Phyllis Browning for our realty needs or going to Bill Miller's barbecue or something like that. So it's kind of an indirect way of calling for some sort of an economic response to people who are doing this. In other words, I mean, otherwise he wouldn't have just prominently mentioned, you know, specific businesses in the text of the tweet. So I think that's absolutely his intention. And, and I don't, I don't see anything wrong with it. I mean, you know, when you donate money to a campaign that that's going to be if it's over 50 bucks, it's going to be public record. And that's, you know, that's our campaign finance law. And if you can't take the heat, maybe you shouldn't donate to the campaign. So I'm going to I'm going to go out on a limb and say, you know, before anybody accuses me of being a snowflake, I want to make it clear the the fact that he published these names. First of all, I'm not one of his constituents. I'm not somebody who donated the maximum allowable amount to the Trump campaign. Um, You know, I guess you could say that this doesn't affect me directly, Um, nor do I think, you know, I'm I'm 
obviously one of my favorite topics to talk about, um, and I used to talk about it a lot, um, is the idea of campaign finance reform. And, and I understand that all this information is public record, and I understand that you can find it fairly easily if you just look a little bit for it. It doesn't take a long amount of time. Um, but, you know, one of the things that that bothered me about this is the fact that you have these business owners and these are businesses, local businesses. I Googled a few of them that have been in this area for a long time. You have people working at these businesses who are supporting families. Uh, you have people working at these businesses who who maybe don't vote the same way that the owner of the business does. And I have to wonder what his ultimate goal was, or even if he thought it through, that he would be affecting these businesses um, in, in this way and that he would be affecting so many people. I mean, these, we're talking about people who are his constituents. And while I understand that this is the America that we're living in, sadly, and, and that this is what it's come to, um, I've seen people do this before on the right and on the left, this sort of like doxing, if that's what you want. I don't know, you know, the calling people out, whatever you want to call it. This happens a lot. Sure. Um, but I don't know that I've seen, at least not recently, somebody come out and do it to their own constituents. And I, I think that rather than look at this as like, well, you're a snowflake. Well, no, I'm not being a snowflake. I think it's more important to see that there are bigger ramifications here to what he's done. Um, and I and again, I go back to my original question when I first saw it. And I, I didn't you know, I didn't tweet about it. I, you know, I kind of lurk on Twitter, but I didn't look at anybody's responses or anything like that. I thought to myself, what's the goal? It wasn't that I hated it or I loved it or anything. It was just what's the goal here? What's he trying to accomplish here? And I think, you know, as the dust settles on this one, um, I'll continue asking that. What was his goal? And will there be repercussions? Will these will these businesses go out of business? Will there be families affected by this? Or is this just an attempt to, you know, like like you said, present this information that's already public? Yeah. Well, I think in terms of repercussions, they're going to be essentially vanishingly small. None of these mm -hmm. businesses are going to go out. It might have a small, tiny little, for a short period of time, downtick. But again, I don't know what Castro's Twitter following is or how many people are even real people as opposed to kind of very politically involved people like us are really even you know, heard about. <laughs> much of this. And, you know, I think it's easy for us to forget, for all of us to forget, because even if you're listening to this to this podcast, you're almost certainly more politically involved and astute than probably, I don't know, 80, 90 percent of the public. Right. And, you know, real people in the real world, most of this stuff, they just never even hear, you know, because they're like, oh, God, it's just a politician. noise. And, and <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah, yeah, noise. Exactly. So yeah. I don't think it's going to have much of a difference at all. Really? So to me, it's it's a it's kind of a flash in the pan sort of thing when it comes to real implications, especially given the fact that we have such an incredibly strong job market right now. And that if there were to be any implications, which I don't think there are, it's not like getting a job is, is all that difficult these days for most folks. But again, I, I don't think that's going to have any kind of a I don't see much coming of it for sure. Okay. Well, um, you know, I, I think it's definitely, again, like all these stories this week that we have a lot to watch in the coming weeks. And yep. I'm sure we'll be circling back to these again on another episode that you oh, and yeah. I go. So yeah, yeah we'll see. But I mean, we've got more to talk about. We're going to have to leave that though for the bonus show for, for folks who are uh, Patreon supporters. And I think we'll be talking about, let's see, the, uh, Peter Strzok and Andrew McCabe filing suit against the Department of Justice, yes. right? Because of their, they're saying it's politically motivated dismissals, I think it is. Mm -hmm. And then, and I hadn't heard about, this is kind of an interesting thing, that proposed law that would make it a felony to, to uh, throw water on New York City police officers, which is really kind of an interesting thing. And I'm really looking forward to talking about that, that with you. Uh, 
So, folks, if you're a supporter, if I'm doing my job, it should be in your podcast app by the time you hear this. And, of course, that's just one of the supporter-only things we have for you to check them all out. Go to patreon.com slash politicsguys, or you can go to politicsguys.com slash support. And if you want to get in touch with us, you can do that at mail at politicsguys.com. There's also our Facebook page, which recently, especially with the gun stuff, has just blown up, I got to say. Um, that's facebook.com slash politicsguys page. We're also on Twitter at politicsguys. If you're not already a subscriber to the show, it would be really great if you could. That helps us out. And also, if you could just let folks know, you know, through word of mouth that you this is a great show to listen to. We would appreciate that. It's the best advertising. And also maybe leaving a review or a rating on the, your podcast app of choice. The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, Benji Fishman, and Andra Masker. Today's show is produced by Krista Matheny and Michael Baranowski. We'll be back with a new show on Wednesday. We hope you'll join us.